into the realm of wellness with the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. In this episode, join us as we dive into a candid conversation with a seasoned broadcast journalist on her inspiring breast cancer journey. Uncover the hottest fitness tips for the futuristic year of 2024. Navigate the intricacies of co-parenting during the festive season. Discover the secrets to optimal blood pressure checks. Explore the world of the worried well and delve into the nuances of safety on film sets. Your journey to a healthier you begins as the Sunday Night Health Show podcast kicks off now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. You've heard her voice before on the program. You know her as one of Vancouver's finest journalists, that is. Julie Nolan is a 33-year veteran, originally from Alberta. She's an anchor and reporter with Global News, doing hundreds of stories on education, parenting, and health along the way. So when she found out she had breast cancer in July of this year, this mother of two adult sons was more than shocked as she was always on top of the issues with, with her dense breast tissue. And she joins me on the line right now. Good evening, Julie. How are you? Oh, hi, Maureen. I'm better now that I get to talk to you. How are you doing? (laughs) You're so sweet. I'm fine, thank you. I am good. It's so nice to have you back, and I really appreciate you sharing your journey with the listeners because it's so important. I'm certain there are other people out there who are going through a breast cancer journey of their own, and when people share their stories, it, it empowers others. So I'm so grateful for you uh, coming on over the past few months to let us know how you're doing and how the navigation of your breast cancer journey has been going. Well, it's it's going pretty well. Um, I can't believe it. Um, I'm already into treatment number seven this coming week. And I have my eighth and final treatment already coming up in mid-January. So that's amazing. Time has, yeah, time has really flown by. That is awesome. And how are you feeling? You sound great. Well, thanks. I feel. I mean, it's 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 a hard thing, as we all know and have have heard. Um, you know, chemotherapy is, a, you know, quite the grind. Um, I think it, it, it doesn't matter what kind of chemotherapy you're undertaking. It's, it's not easy on the human body. And, um, you know, I've certainly taken a beating here uh, about, uh, I've, like, five weeks ago, I started a new uh, type of um, chemotherapy called uh, Taxol and Herceptin. And, that comes with bone pain. And I think the last time I, yeah, the last time I spoke with you, um, I think I was uh, just finishing up uh, Red Devil and and about to start this new drug. So that, the the introduction of bone pain has certainly made me feel like I've aged about 20 more years. Um, But thankfully, I don't have the nausea um, and other issues that I had with the other chemotherapy. So, I mean, you take the good with the bad. You do indeed. And, and it's so great that you are, uh, you know, on treatment number seven this week and and looking to wrap this up, um, in a month's time or so. And and Julie, may I ask you in navigating through your breast cancer diagnosis and treatment, what sources of support or coping mechanisms did you find most valuable? What, um, would you say to other people who might be just starting their journey or in the midst of it and are having difficulty? Well, I think that 
you know, I've been very lucky because I had a pretty excellent foundation um, prior to my diagnosis, an amazing husband, um, amazing, I mean, truly awesome kids um, and their partners. And, you know, it's, it's nice too that they're in their twenties and they can, you know, step up. Um, my, my son is taking me to my chemotherapy um, this week. So that's nice that he's going to, you know, he's going to be there um, for, for me where my husband has to work. And usually it's my hubby that's taking me. So, Uh you know, I'll have, I'll have my youngest son with me. So anyway, the, the, my family, my friends, you know, I've got, uh, an amazing best friend in Saskatoon who even from afar, you know, tries to do whatever she can to, you know, show her support. Um, and, um, you know, so many colleagues, friends, you know, even my employer has been, you know, absolutely amazing. Um, Global BC has been incredibly um, supportive through all of this. But I think for me, inside, you know, my, I think we touched on this in another call was about, you know, sitting there, I do gratitude journaling, that really helps me to stay positive and try to find those silver linings along the way. Absolutely. The gratitude journaling is incredible and I know can have such a positive impact uh, for people, you know, thinking about the things that we are grateful for, even when we're facing these challenges. Uh, Was there a pivotal moment or experience during your breast cancer journey that had a significant impact on your, on your outlook on life or your perspective on life? in and of itself? Wow. <laughs> You're going to want, you want to talk to me then for the next hour. Cause I have, <laughs> no, and I'll keep it short. I would say, you know, honestly, it's, it's just everything about this experience is truly life changing. And, um, it's, it's just, it, it is not surprising to me at all that I have had many epiphanies along the way, and I have been so touched by, you know, um, viewers, um, people who reached out to me over the last few months. Um, you know, that, that support in itself is amazing as well. But I think it's about trying to um, really be in the moment as much as you can. And um, sometimes I want to race ahead to next year. Uh, in my mind, I think, oh, what's it going to be like a year from now, you know, when I'm not, you know, struggling this Christmas? What what right. will be next year? You know, so I, I think as much as I have to, um, you know, accept what's happening to me right now and, and be present and learn to listen to my body, um, I think to having hope and keeping my chin up has really... Uh, been uh, empowering along the way and it and you know you do feel like you have uh, less time for the things that don't matter and more time for the things that do. My guest is anchor and reporter with Global News Julie Nolan and she has so graciously been sharing her breast cancer journey with us for the past few months. Thanks so much for staying on the line Julie. You bet. Now, you mentioned with this new chemo, you're experiencing bone pain, and that must just be awful because I know that orthopedic pain or bone pain is so, so painful. 
indescribable. In the past, you'd mentioned some other um, symptoms or side effects from the chemo, like chemo brain. What yeah. were some of the physical and emotional um, side effects or, that you've had? I think, you know, aside from uh, chemo brain, which is something that I think I heard about before I started this journey, but didn't really fully appreciate just how much uh, of an impact that has on your, your brain and that, uh, you know, the chemicals are, are, are in your brain and it, it really feels like uh, you're a zombie, you know, that you can't uh, be cohesive in your thoughts and I feel like the chemo brain is getting better on this new drug than what I felt like for the first, you know, uh, three months. But now I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better. Um, like I mentioned, you get the, you know, uh, the, the gastrointestinal issues that mm-hmm. come with chemotherapy. I think most uh, patients complain about that. If they don't, they're so lucky. The fatigue is real. Um, the one thing that cropped up for me here in the last um, about month has been being launched into menopause. So I, you know, mm. I, I, I really don't like it. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is, that has really been uh, troublesome for me because I didn't have any, even though I'm in my fifties, I didn't have any um, hot flashes or um, other issues like night sweats. And, and so that's been a real adjustment. Um, luckily, I, I'm, you know, dressing differently. My husband bought me a little portable fan. So, Aww. you know, we're coming up with solutions to manage it. Um, so that's, you know, those are kind of the main things. The bone pain just feels like I, I was writing my family today. I said, it's like when I played field hockey as a teenager and just been, you know, hit in the shins. Right. Um, Right. You know, you just you feel that, you know, tremendous pain and yes. it is in my lower legs and, and in my uh, arms. But luckily, most of it's gone. And, you know, so I'm going to have a few days of, of uh, relief here. And then the next round of chemo will probably bring it all back. But I'm not quite sure if it's the Taxol or if it's the drug that I'm taking for the white blood cell, um, you know, production. So, uh-huh. it, it, you know. I just, you probably know better than me, but I just, yeah, those are the, those are the fun things. And then of course, you know, your hair loss and, you know, my eyebrows are pretty much gone. Eyelashes are gone. You know, that, Uh that, that's an emotional thing, I think for me anyway. And I think everyone's different, but when you, you know, my hair is trying to grow back already. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And, and some people lose their hair again when they get onto this new drug. So I've got this, really fuzzy little hair, uh, hairy head that, you know, my hair is like, you know, maybe two centimeters long and it's super fine and very different than what it was. But, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that the body wants to get back to living, you know, so I see that as a sign of that. Right. I had a patient in recently who had tried that cooling cap, um, for, and for, for chemo hair loss and yes. felt that it was effective. I don't know if you tried that really? or not. Really? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't. Uh, my yeah. I talked to my oncologist, and she said, "Well, you know, in all my years of practicing oncology, she said I've only seen like maybe one person that it worked for. So wow. for me, yeah. it was like, well, I might as well just surrender. I'm not going to be able to keep my hair. 
And um, I was able to save my hair before I lost it, got it cut off, and I donated the hair to myself. uh, Nice. Which people think, what? That's crazy. Yeah, so I have a wig that has some of my own hair in it. That's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's ultimate self-care. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Good for you. Um, how about Thank emotionally? You. How has this hit you emotionally? Do you find yourself um, getting down? I mean, you're, you're so optimistic. You sound so cheerful. You're always so upbeat. Um, but are there times when you just... Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you do feel a little bit of that weight. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, I, I, I think for the most part, um, you know, when I get, you know, like, I think I mentioned this previously, you know, getting that diagnosis was like, you know, getting hit by a, a semi truck and, mm-hmm. you know, as it has, things have gone on over time. As soon as I sort of, uh, had to deal with certain challenges along the way, certainly felt you know, like it was a bumpy road, but once I kind of figured out what was really happening, what, what kind of care would I be able to get, um, how much support I would have, um, I felt like I would sort of lift up my, my chin a little bit more and it would, you know, kind of get me through those, those tough times. But I would say that generally speaking, I'm pretty, uh, pretty solid in my positivity. I don't, I don't feel like for me that I have, you know, crying episodes or anything like that. But I do know, as I've talked to other patients, and that's the thing about being in the role that I'm in, that I hear from people who are going through cancer as well. And it can be very scary for a lot of people. And I, I can certainly relate and I can feel that fear for your life and what's ahead. Um, from a lot of those other patients. Um, And, you know, I just, I feel like for me, I've always been a very positive person. So while I have to pause, think about the gravity of the situation, um, you know, there are definite moments where I feel that. But I also try to choose to find a way to celebrate the goodness around me. And and that is just such a a great attitude to have. Julie, I wish we had more time, but we don't. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and your insights and advice experience. Uh, I'm certain that's helping the listeners out there. And I'm wishing you the best holiday season ever. Same to you, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me on. Happy holidays. Thank you so much. And same to you as well. I really appreciate you coming on. We'll catch up with you in the new year and good luck with everything. Thanks so much, Maureen. Take care. All right. As the new year approaches in a matter of weeks, a considerable number of individuals are eager to embrace a fresh start by establishing fitness-related goals. According to my guest, while this approach resonates with some, a significant portion of gym members is seeking a more holistic and well-rounded fitness experience for 2024. Joining me on the line to talk about this is behavioral psychologist at Good Life, Dr. Scott Laith. Good evening, Dr. Laith. How are you? Good evening, Maureen. I'm great. How are you? I am just wonderful. Thank you so much for asking. Looking to 2024 and thinking, 
yes, I'm going to get in amazing shape. <laughs> I have a, I, I have, I'm going to veil <laughs> in February. So I've got to be in good shape for that. <laughs> That's one thing I, I'm fresh off of, not really fresh off. I'm actually months off of a, no, that's not right either. I had a, I pulled my gastrocnemius muscle on the tennis court. And it's really taken me five oh. months to get back. And, and I'm still not, I'm still not, um, optim at my optimal playing anyway. So it kind of has affected my outlook and my, um, which I, I normally work out quite a bit, exercise quite a bit, I should say, but it really has weakened me, shall I say. <laughs> Any oh, advice? Yeah. Tennis. Tennis <laughs> is intense. And I, I'm in there with you. I've got like a partial medial meniscus tear right now that I'm coming uh, off of. And oh yeah. Right there. It's brutal, I tell you. And then, you know, because you're I'm being so careful and I'm a bit nervous that I'm going to re injure it, um, which I did two or three times after the initial injury. Um, but you know, I'm back on the court. I've been playing for a little bit. I played today. Um, you know back in clinics anyhow, but I'm nervous. So yeah, I'm yeah. nervous you must to do really other. Love tennis. I beg your pardon. You must really love tennis. I love it. Oh yeah, <laughs> I do. I do. I'd like to get back playing at my regular level, but, mm -hmm. um, now I'm not really winning too many games, <laughs> which is not great, but I'm tentative, you know? And so, yeah, it, yeah. you know, I know even like an injury can affect a person's, um, physical fitness, if you will. But, you know, so, yeah. so we talked about, I'm very interested in the more holistic and well-rounded fitness experience that um, you're talking about. So what can we expect for 2024? Oh, yeah. So uh, kind of what I've been seeing, I started seeing this on social media a little bit, and I do research both out in the general Canadian market. So thousands of Canadians out in the population and like over 10,000 Good Life members as well. And uh, what I've been seeing is something that like some people are calling like the slow lane, right? That, that you and I are being forced to take. We might not like it usually, but you get an injury and then you can't work out with the usual intensity and you have to kind of focus on other things. And uh, injury, like you're right. Uh, every time I meet a physiotherapist, I ask them, I'm like, what's your busiest time of year? Because I like to check and like without fail, they're like, oh, February and March that people mm. get injured and it throws them off. And this is often because they just, they go too hard in January. Mm -hmm. Like they, they sort of like hit the ground running or like sprinting, running too fast. And uh, it, it starts to like build up and wear on them. And then around six weeks, eight weeks, uh, they fall off. And so uh, what I found is that people are kind of approaching it in a more intelligent way, perhaps, where they're saying like, okay, like going that intense, like it seems like it's not working out. It doesn't make me feel good. And really what I want to do is not what all these social media influencers are telling me. I don't want to worry if I'm doing the right thing or not. So they're going in and they're like, I just want to feel good. You know? and, and maybe I'll just go in and I'll walk on the treadmill 20 minutes, sweat a little bit, hit the sauna, shower, and I go in the parking lot and I feel great. Or <laughs> I, I heard um, the other day. There's some guys talk, I, you know, it's a morning crowd. I know some of the guys and they were like, oh, I'm just doing the executive workout today. And I was like, what is, what is that? And he said, <laughs> oh, you know, you just hit the sauna, shower, don't do any real work, take care of yourself. And that, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> and, uh, oh my it's just, gosh. Yeah. It's, so it's just this prioritization of I'm going to explore around, find the things that feel good to me 
and mm-hmm. then build something off of that. I'm not going to you know, feel pressured from the outside or feel like I have to go too hard. Right, exactly. Um, but, you know, will that lead to more injuries come February, March? Or, you know, are, are people taking into consideration their, their mental health along with their physical health? Oh, yeah, mental health, absolutely. Like this, the, the focus on well, like mental well-being and mental health is it's like a tidal wave that I've seen come up because I, I run these studies um, multiple times a year. And what I've seen, like especially post-COVID, is just people are becoming so, so, so aware, and they have become, and, and this is still kind of like growing, very aware of their own mental health, their own mental well-being, and their stress levels, and they're looking for smart ways to feel good, especially that like things even in the world at large, are becoming more stressful and more uncertain. And exercise is very much a sure thing. Like if you do it, it's going to happen for you kind of a deal. And uh, so I've seen like also through like information spread on the Internet, people are like, oh, like if you're suffering in this way, like work out, you'll feel better. And uh-huh. or if you want to have better, better mental performance, work out and it'll happen for you. And uh, people are very much taking that to heart, very much internalizing it, especially um, people in, in their 20s and younger um, with the youth. Mental health is very, very big. Uh-huh. And, you know, you do. It's hard to get out there and exercise, especially doing something that you're forced to do because you can't do what you love. Um you know, for those of us who have an injury, but once you get out there, no matter what it is, you feel amazing when you're finished doing that, you know, no matter what exercise it is, if it's on the treadmill, if you go to the gym, if you go even take the dog for a walk, 30 minute walk outside, you feel amazing once you're done, but to get out there, how do we get that motivation? You're a behavioral psychologist. I'm looking for free advice here. Well, uh, yeah, I, I kind of I like to say that the hardest part of going to the gym is just going there. That once uh-huh. you're there, your brain's like, oh, it's a special place. This is nice. It's bright. It's friendly. I like being here. But the habits at home and sort of inserting that into your daily routine can be that is the big thing. That is the big challenge. And so there's something in psychology called uh, sort of like this, these if then planning. They're called implementation intentions. And so Uh this is something that is, it's very popular in research because it works so well. So anybody, any scientist can kind of like pick it up, apply it to something, get results and yeah, I get to publish a paper. And um, (laughs) so how it works is it's a very simple kind of like if then thing where, okay, like or when I get home, I'm going to do this. And you have to sit there maybe like 20, 30 seconds. And it's a very intentional thing and visualize yourself. Okay. Like I'm going to get home. I'm going to place my bag here. I'm going to have my stuff ready. I'm going to pick it up, go out into the car. And once you do that, uh, your brain can kind of recognize, be like, oh, this is a thing. That uh, an imagined experience is kind of like a minor version of a real one to our brains. Like our imaginations are very powerful. It's one of the things that makes us unique as humans. And so being able to think deliberately about, okay, getting there is the thing that we tend to focus very much on like, what am I going to do when I'm there? What are the people going to be like? But really the people are nice, right? They're all exercise. They feel good. and uh-huh. <laughs> They're kind of friendly in contrast to what is in popular culture. So just focusing on that, planning it out, thinking about it, and just taking those 20 and 30 seconds to visualize. And the, uh-huh. the research results are very clear. It's great. That's awesome. Now I have a text message. I'm, I'm not sure if, um, I, I think you'll be able to answer this, but um, uh, somebody who's written in, Derek from Edmonton, uh, oh. says that he has an umbilical hernia 
Can you give me some simple exercises that I can do that won't bother it? Oh my goodness. I am not that person. I'm sorry. You are not no, that I'm person. Like, I, I'm a behavioral psychologist. <laughs> I'm not a personal trainer and I am not <laughs> equipped to answer that question. Like I've had a hernia myself, but no, that, uh-huh. that's like a doctor physiotherapist thing for sure. Well, even as a nurse, Derek, I can answer that question for you. So even after any kind of hernia, walking can help to keep your muscles strong and help you reduce your risk of any complications. Leg straightens can be um, done. Um, you know, you can even do, you know, try to strengthen your core to do some core twists as well. Some very gentle ones or, or pelvic tilts can also help to strengthen your abdominal muscles without the risk of putting pressure on the inside of your hernia. But best idea, Derek, is for you to speak to your doctor, uh, because I don't know exactly what your situation is. And, um, also, maybe to go to see a physiotherapist who might be able to help you with that. Um, back to how we're going to get our mindset around um, exercising for 2024. Is this the year, Scott, is this the, or Dr. Lath, is this the year um, to get in shape? We've been through a lot the last few years with the pandemic. People are working from home. Lives have changed dramatically. Careers have changed for people. Um, you know, what, what does this, uh, 2024 look like? I think it looks like people, um, we've kind of come off this sort of like high pressure hustle culture that we all saw become rather popular. I think in the late Uh 2010s, the pandemic hit, we all sort of like took a beat, took a breath and could realize like maybe like, I don't want to live that way. And I I don't want to be so intense. And, people became very aware of mental health. And now we've had a couple of years after that. And uh, if those of us who got the worst of it, I think have had time now to get back on our feet properly and we can start looking forward. And so I think 2024 is a very, I mean, it might, <laughs> it might not appear this way on the internet, but it's kind of an optimistic year, at least for like us internally, like individual people. And this, I see coming out in this focus on, this mental health, mental well-being, I want to do this because it feels good. And I want to pay attention to me and my needs. And I'm really seeing people express it at the gym. And uh, I'm also seeing people talk about it in certain ways. Like, I want to be able to work out the way I want to work out. Like, there is this external force that they feel shackled to, and they're noticing it. And uh, people are focusing more on taking care of themselves. And I think it's incredibly healthy. And the research shows very clearly that a focus on well-being, especially if it's for something else, like I want to be more, I want to deal better with stress for my children, right? Or or I want to do this for my job or with my family to be better in that way. That That is the most successful way I know of to approach fitness. And so with this, because that is getting bigger and bigger and more and more popular and awareness is growing, I think this really could be like a wonderful year for people to get into fitness with that mindset. My guest, Dr. Scott Lath, the behavioral psychologist at Good Life. We are talking about exercise in 2024. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Lath. Oh, my pleasure. Now, um, I, I understand that uh, there are some five ways to feel your best with fitness. One of them is to view fitness as play. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And there's actually studies to support this. Yeah, so it's viewing exercise and uh, fitness in more of an unstructured way, that you're going in and you're kind of exploring, you're discovering, it's, uh, and you're paying more attention to how you feel. And 
how much you enjoy it, especially like whether it's a class or it's a particular, even a particular machine that I found people be like, you know, I really like this one. I like the way it moves and it's kind of fun in that way. I've heard people compare certain uh, machines and pieces of equipment like a jungle gym or it lets them feel that way a little bit. And uh, it's more fun in that way. And research does show, like, if you go in and you have a good time, I see this especially with uh, group fitness classes at Good Life, with <laughs> the dance ones, too. Like, I don't do them personally, but I hear them, like, wooing and laughing and clapping, and they have a good time in there. And uh, <laughs> our brains will want to reproduce things that feel good. And so if you can go in and create that experience for yourself, it helps build a habit like very, very strongly. And uh, But sometimes we go in with a plan, like we'll get it off the internet and we'll be like, okay, I have to do this thing. And if you can't do it, you feel bad. But if you like really push yourself through, you might also feel bad. But going in and saying, I'm going to explore, I'm going to focus on what feels good and just see, try and see what kind of a good time I can have, that is, tends to be very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, this is probably off topic, but one of my kids has a virtual reality headset and it was, nice. it was a game. Of course, they're war games that they're playing. Um, so I was trying it out and you know what, it's pretty active, but, but I, I asked, is there a, a workout virtual reality? What do you think of, and, and there must be, I can't have discovered it. I can't be the only one who's thought, gee, they should make a workout one. Um, But like boxing or something, I I don't, I never got an answer. Of course, they weren't paying attention to me. Um, But what do you think of virtual reality for um, working out? So we do track these things at Good Life, for sure, that we're always kind of like looking at the horizon. What are people doing? What's the latest tech? Do we want this fun thing to come in? And uh, so we, we do look at virtual reality and kind of gamifying things. I've seen like zombie running simulators that can happen. Mm-hmm. You put them on a treadmill. There are like interesting games that they do, like, you know, even with like a weight machine where there's a screen and you're controlling something and it's taking you through the reps, but you're also moving like a ball around the screen or solving the puzzle. And those are very, very interesting. And for, um, for, virtual reality in the headsets there's a game like beat saber where you're kind of like playing and you're swinging those things around there are of course there are sword fighting simulators and Mm -hmm. i personally i have a lot of optimism for that because that is very fun and like fitness exactly the point it's just kind of like a part of the process and people will play forever and they'll sweat and i mean as long as that's happening that's a win yeah, you don't even have to go anywhere. Um, <laughs> now, what about uh, trying different workouts? Which I guess virtual reality is an example of that. Um, what? How do you do? You recommend that for twenty twenty four? Absolutely, yes, yeah. yeah. We, when we were talking about uh, exploration and finding the things you enjoy, you have to try a lot of different things. Like that's part of the reason why good life is structured the way it is, why we have like, so many different things and we try to have so many different pieces of equipment and a sports area and a recovery area and like non-exercise related stuff and all those different types of classes so that people can go in and like, no matter what you're in the mood for, we have something, right? And uh, whether it's virtual reality or it's walking in nature or just like go, walking your dog or like running in a particular way, like I, I really don't like running, but I found that I like this like slow jog and I find uh-huh. that very peaceful. But for, it took me a long time to discover that. And uh, I work out like plenty. So it, it's, yeah, you, you want to try out a lot of options. All sure. different things. Yeah, I like doing oh, different yeah. things as well. Um, and, and how about I, uh, getting feedback from other people, like uh, getting a coach or a personal trainer? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? 
And that is, that's ideal. And I would say optimal. So if you're one of those people who you don't have a lot of time or like you find there's a lot of noise on the internet and you're like, man, I just don't like, they're giving you advice that probably doesn't apply to you or you have limitations from past injuries. Mm-hmm. Like I do personally, like you want to be able to talk to an expert that will be like, okay, oh, okay, like I've seen this before, so you should probably do these things or use this or do this exercise in this way. And that just cuts through so much time and like complication for somebody. If they just want to get to the optimal thing and understand the gym right away, that is, it's a real fast track and it's very good. And of course, the support, encouragement, confidence, um, I, I hear about that a lot and people really love it. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't like the exercises on the internet because they're tarring everybody with the same brush. It's clickbait. They just yeah. want everybody, no matter what their issue is or, you know, whatever shape they're in or wherever they are, it, everything applies, you know, the same across the board. I, I do want to let you know that I, I did get a text. It said, love the guest you have from Good Life. Please have him on again. <laughs> um, that's so nice. Thank yeah. You. Isn't that nice? I like to convey nice messages to people. So your 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 inspiration, your information is really in, um inspirational <laughs> is uh is helping people out there. Um and do you think that we should do this on a schedule? I mean, it's hard for people who are working full time, but how how do we incorporate this into our lives? Well, this is this is like a very tricky thing. It's the number one barrier that I see because, of course, I talk to people about these things and like what's getting in the way. How do we help you? What do we do? It's like busy life. That is the number one thing. And the more you do at home and the more you have going on, the trickier it can be, which is why options are important. Right. Which is why I mean, gyms are great. I love them as a special place where my brain doesn't say I have to go to the TV. It's just like, okay, we're in the gym. There's nothing else going on. This is Uh nice. But like home, if that's the most convenient thing, that's the most convenient thing. If like you can walk around your block and that's the most convenient thing, that's it. It requires experimentation with your schedule and a little bit of like intentionality. I would say that you have to like think about that plan and figure it out. Otherwise, like we're all kind of like in our little habitual loops with work and home and work and home. So it's breaking that up uh, can be very hard. Exactly. And, Just do yeah. it. Dr. Scott Lath, thank you so much. Behavioral psychologist at Good Life, thank you so much for all of your words of wisdom. And we're going to get you back in the new year. Oh, I'd, I'd love to be here again. Thank you, Maureen. She is the go-to MD coach who empowers executives, leaders, physicians, lawyers, and other professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace and in their personal life. Her website is Holistic Strategies. HolisticWellnessStrategies.com. Sorry, HolisticWellnessStrategies.com with three S's in there. She is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. One thing, I I have a lot of things. (laughs) But one one thing I'm not, intentionally anyway, because none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. But I try not to be mean. And mean people just rub me the wrong way. I, I think mean, I think there's no place for being mean in the world. And I also think it demonstrates a lack of self-esteem of people. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's their issue, not the person they are bestowing the meanness on. And sometimes we see this meanness at the most wonderful or what's meant to be the happiest, nicest time of the year. That was the word I was looking for. And it happens with co-parenting 
during the holidays. I've seen many people in my clinical practice. I have family members um, who have experienced um, challenges with this. Um, why do? Why should we actually co-parent in a nice way <laughs> during the holidays? And and I know it's challenging to co-parent during the holidays, but people really need to make their children the priority. Why is that? Well, children need two healthy parents being adults to help maintain their feelings of security, belonging, etc. When their world has likely already been shattered by, you know, the separation of their parents. Mm-hmm. So, and they need to lead by example. And everything you're doing as parents, whether you say, um, do as I say, kids are watching what you do. So it's really, really important for that child's mental health, physical health, emotional health to lead by example and have two healthy, nice people working together for the sake of their child. And and it's really the child that needs to be put at the forefront here. And if you have any questions or comments about this, if you've experienced this, 1-877-399-9898, would love to hear from you. This is a big problem. Um, you know, when kids, of course, they're devastated when their parents um, get divorced. I actually know somebody, she was in her mid to late 50s. Her parents were in their early 90s, got divorced. The family is shattered. This is one of my patients. Wow. They are shattered. She's so upset. At any age, you are so upset if your parents get um, divorced. And, you know, you can imagine a, a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old, you know, their world is shattered. They're confused. And then the mother is treating the father poorly or the father's treating the mother poorly or controlling them with finances or whatever, and or just talking negatively about the other parent. I mean, that sets a child up for mental health issues, does it not? 100%. Just having parents that separate or go do divorce is one checkbox in the adverse child event scorer. So that already puts a child at risk. Then you add dysfunctional interactions like it's not good at all it's very selfish to be abusive to the other parent and here having that child witness that kind of behavior it's not healthy exactly um, we have a caller so um from edmonton mm-hmm. just want to uh hello derek hey morning how are you i'm not bad how about you i'm fine thank you Thanks for your call. What's up? Well, um, I have uh, a bit of a comment about being mean, um, like you were talking about. Um, I am only ever mean to someone if they have severely crossed a line with me. Hmm. And how does that, I'm no psychologist, but how does that make you feel? Well, I mean, I've, I've given them chance after chance after chance to change their behavior and they don't, then I have no time for them. Mm-hmm. And so you're mean back. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's correct. And do you feel good when you're, I mean, we've all done that. We've all, our limits have been pushed and you might say something that you regret, you know, because you're, you're not going higher, you're going lower. You're stooping to their level. I know when I've done well, that, I don't feel good about myself. 
I, I don't really regret what I, if I'm, if I'm mean to that person, I don't really regret it because they've already crossed that line. There's no going back after that. Mm-hmm. I know some people fight mean and they say mean things and, and it's difficult to just not say something mean back. And every now and again we do, but I still think the better way is to just refrain from saying something mean. Why stoop to their level for all of us? Well, yeah. I, I only stoop to their level once they've uh, kind of said, well, no, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to continue to cross those boundaries. And Dr. Mitchell, were you, did you have something yeah, to say? Yeah, he actually put, I was actually going to say, sometimes we confuse having boundaries, and he just mentioned boundaries with being mean. Right. Because when somebody goes to the point when they push you and push you and push you, where it's clearly they're doing this to be special, um, that you have to take a different stance because that behavior, when someone tells you just, just to stop doing something and they continue doing it, that's not normal. That's not no, normal. It isn't. I don't know the full story. So that's why I just want to say sometimes that we see, we think we're being mean, but really we're putting up a boundary. Now, again, I'm not, I don't know the full story, but for listeners who are hearing, a lot of us struggle to put those really big walls up because it's not natural to us, but we, it's necessary if dealing with somebody who was quote unquote special. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what you're doing, Derek, is setting up a healthy boundary? That's, that's what it, my intent is. Okay, that's good. I thought you were lashing right back at them. Oh, no, no, no. It, it, my intent is to set up that boundary, but that's great. Yeah. If, they're, if they're continuing to cross that boundary, and they, uh, then I, I just, I've, I've lost it on a roommate before because uh, he, was, he would not back off when I said, no, don't do that, stop. I, I think and I that's a great boundary. Weird. But to say mm-hmm. stop please don't do that anymore. You know, even putting your hand up, you know, I know I think that's healthy. I think we teach people how to treat us. Exactly. And some people will push you to the point of getting a reaction because they know what they're doing. And then they'll say, Oh, you reacted. How bad are you? But won't acknowledge that they've violated the boundary like 50 times before. Right. So um, it's just a clear case of that's like, I, call them toxic soul sucking individuals, vampires, energy vampires, that you just need to remove yourself from that situation. Exactly. Derek, thanks so much for the call. Happy holidays to you. You're welcome. Um, And, you know, just getting back to co-parenting, you know, there can be resentments. Those resentments can last for years from between one spouse to the ex-spouse. And they use the children as pawns. And they don't also value, you know, some people who are co-parenting poorly during the holidays, shall I say, um, you know, they don't appreciate the fact that they're impacting their child's emotional health. Yeah, it's quite selfish, you know, and there are people who don't care. Anyone is, can be collateral damage for them to inflict pain on the other person, the other parent. So there are people like that. That's right. And, and, um, what are some of the, do you have any tips for somebody out there who's struggling with this issue during the holiday? I like to have, I have affirmations when you, if you know you're dealing with somebody like that and it's not the typical fuzzy, 
I feel good about myself. I'm wonderful. It's like affirmations of who that person is. So mm-hmm. you need to know who they are. It's not what they say, it's what they do. And you need to at, remind yourself that you're dealing with someone who's not typical. And you need to document things. And you need to try your best to keep your cool and decide the means in which you will communicate with that person and how you will communicate with that person. As much as possible, take the higher road. Um, I know. As much as possible. I know it can be very challenging, especially if someone's in your face and, you know, very aggressive. But well, I mean, like if they're like withholding the child, if they're actually limiting the amount of time, they're not making that the amount of time on a holiday, you know, fair, fairly divided, yeah, that kind sure. of thing. Yeah. So typically there's a court order in place that they may have to address um, standing up for oneself in a respectful way, emailing or call like documenting. Like, if someone wants to be difficult, there's only so much you could do besides, unfortunately, if you're dealing with a child custody, then you have to go through the appropriate measures to resolve that for the future year. Because, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. there's there's a reason why the relationship didn't work in the first place, and one of them probably was communication. Absolutely. So so it's kind of a, a tough, it's a very tough situation. And what do you think about parents who talk negatively about the other parent to their child? I think it is very unhealthy. And there's a difference between saying a fact and um, tactfully, if needed, and just bad-mouthing the other person. I think it's, um, unless the child's safety, it, it has to do with a child's safety issue, you need to let the child know something, or, like, it shouldn't ha- be happening. Like, it's, it's toxic. It's abuse. It's wrong. It backfires. You think you're trying to bring the child closer to you and be on your side, but potentially it backfires. And then it leaves a child that's hurt and with loyalties that are torn. A child shouldn't have to choose between either parent, right? Exactly, yeah. It's not good. It's not good. My guest is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's the go-to MD coach who empowers executives, leaders, physicians, lawyers, and other professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace and in their personal life. Holistic strategy, holisticwellnessstrategies.com is her website, holisticwellnessstrategies.com. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Mitchell. My pleasure, Marie. Now, we talk a lot about the healthcare system, the long waits, the um, in, you know access to care, um, long times in emergency rooms, nowhere for patients to go in the hospitals. So they're not getting discharged. So the flow is impacted, um, the cost, things that are covered, things that aren't, but we rarely talk about the worried well, which I actually think has an impact on the healthcare system. Who exactly are the, or what is the worried well? What do I mean by that? (laughs) Yeah. It's someone who feels like something is wrong with them very worried, but they're actually fine. Like there's nothing wrong with them. They have a lot of information. Perhaps they've gathered up, you know, on Dr. Google and they've come to the conclusion that there's something wrong with them. And so these are typically people who are in good health. Yes. So, and, and they, do they clog up our system? I mean, how often are you seeing them in a GP practice, for example? Yeah, so I see them on a weekly basis, um, though I would say there's more unwell who should be worried 
than the R word as well. <laughs> True. Good point. <laughs> you know, that's uh, what I normally see. Um, right. When I first meet them. Um, but yeah, it definitely does. You know, they often require many tests. Sometimes you may consider them unnecessary. Now, can you tell the worried well <laughs> when they come in? Because <laughs> I think I can. <laughs> yes. The, the few who are clearly clinically worried well, you can tell. Um, you, it's pretty clear the first visit, but definitely after you give them a, you know, an open ear and listen to them, and then you hear the litany of tests that they've gone through, and you see the reports, and you're like, okay. Yes, we need to redirect this into something that's not so much physical. It's more of a psychological, emotional thing. We need to deal with it. What is the underlying concern? What are we really worried about here? What's going on? Right. And there are some psychological problems commonly associated with the worried well, like depression and anxiety. Guilt is another Mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Yeah. OCD. So do we, you know, do you think doctors address the worried well in the way I mean, are they up front? Is it a difficult thing to say, you know, yeah, I think you're yeah. one of the worried well. <laughs> yeah. So we have to kind of hold them with like, a, what you know, you know, white gloves, so to speak, like really hold their hand and be like, okay, let's listen to you. Be patient, establish trust. Because at this point, they may not trust that doctors know what they're talking about because they feel like no one's listening, no one's got a diagnosis, so we don't know what we're doing. So mm-hmm. establish the trust. And um, give them strategies that they can use to reassure themselves that they are okay and also clear what are red flags. And, you know, it takes time to get them less worried. And some people do worry by nature. And Mm -hmm. we just know that every practice has these individuals that we try to be creative in when we book them. So we're not putting them in the beginning of a busy, middle of a busy day, maybe end of the day. Um, they're there and we do our best. Right. I mean, I, I do think this is one of those um, classifications of patients that, um, you know, they typically have repeated visits to yeah. the doctor's office. They take yeah. a, a bit longer. They, you know, are very concerned, but I don't know. I don't know if people are, or physicians are upfront with them, but how do you say to somebody, this is all in your head, especially to women, because women are often dismissed, especially during perimenopause, menopause, and, you know, are dismissed as it being in their head, but, and it's not necessarily in their head because they do have an emotional problem or psychological problem. Definitely. And, you know, first listen to them, validate that, you know, you have to listen to what's going on. You know, your body better. Let's see what's been done. Let's see how we can help you. What things that you may be worried about that there's no real significant or even somewhat significant outcome that can result from having this annoying symptom like a ring in your ear, for example. We just love tinnitus. Over the holiday, you might be heading off to the movies. Lots of people are. There's going to be some new releases as well. But my next segment might give you pause when you're watching that film that might seem a romantic comedy or a drama or a high-speed chase. Dr. Paul Heinzelman is a primary care physician. 
And he got into the film industry kind of by accident, if you will. In 2006, the state of Massachusetts introduced a tax incentive to bring film and television productions to the state. He's been providing medical support for cast and crew for many productions since that time. And now he fully understands the nuances of the film industry as a workplace for both cast and crew. And he's learned that there are many, many dangers that lurk within the film industry. Five years ago, he started filming interviews with people in the industry and is set to release a documentary called Safe Sets, Dying to Work in the Film Industry in 2024. And Dr. Paul Heinzelman joins me on the line from Boston, my hometown. Thanks so much for joining me, Dr. Paul. Well, thank you, Maureen. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be having this conversation with you. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, it's a real honor and a pleasure to talk to you. As you know, I've done some work in the film industry as well, and and I've had a little bit of a, a look at your um, a cut of the film, and even I was shocked at uh, to learn of some of the the dangers, the accidents, the risk, and even the deaths that go along with producing a film. Yeah, it's kind of um, it's kind of eye opening. Um, you know, when I first started working in this industry, I was sort of awed by the, you know, the celebrity and the the the, the big sets and the lights and you know all the all the hoopla. Um, and over time, I started to be able to see some of the dark corners in the industry. And, um, over time I, I started getting more curious about what kinds of health and safety risks are there and what sort of trade-offs do people make when they decide to work in this industry. One of the biggest trade-offs that people make is the, is time. The hours in a day can be 15, 17 hours a day. It's not unusual. They can work 80 to 90 hours a week, not getting enough sleep. Tell me about that danger for people, for a cast and crew. Yeah, it's a, it's a real um, elephant in the room, you could say. Um, you know, as a, as a physician, when we train during our residency, we have very similar hours and so I, you know, I, I, I got to feel that firsthand, you know, what's it like to, to work, you know, crazy hours where your memory starts to go, your, your ability to um, react and think logically starts to go. And, and over time, the, there are real risks to your health, you know, including cardiovascular health, the risk of diabetes, um, cognitive decline, dementia, and ultimately even early death. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of people are also lured into the film industry because it, it pays pretty well. There's union wages, there's time and a half, double time after a certain uh, amount of hours. And there's that, you know, it's a little bit addictive. Um, but the reason people make a lot of money as well is because of the number of hours that they are working and they get very little turnaround time to have to be back the next day. So it impacts their sleep, I'm, I'm sure. And we all know what happens when our sleep is impacted as well. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, you and I had the pleasure of working together 
during COVID and, um, you know, uh, even there they were, uh, you know, they were supposedly cutting back on hours because of all the Mm -hmm. extra work, but I'm not so sure it happened to any significant degree. Um, but you know, um, yeah, people are working crazy hours and the, there's a bit of a double-edged sword, as you alluded to there. You know, the <clears throat> the prospect of making more money by working overtime um, is is in in some ways kind of a self-induced um, situation where you're you're willing to to to, to live without le- with with less sleep and and you know then pay the consequences. Absolutely. And the other thing is that, you know, in order for people to stay awake, and this may not be the only reason, but um, it has been noticed that there is a certain amount of, shall we say, uh, recreational drug use and and abuse on film sets and also um, alcohol consumption. And, you know, um, that seems to be an issue on some film sets as well. Yeah, unfortunately, the you know, the, the lengths people will go to uh, stay awake, um, get to sleep later, um, stay alert, um, and then just sort of unwind when they finally have some free time, it, you know, leads people to using substances that are not good for them. And, Absolutely. and of course, addiction can be the result. Yeah. So there are a number of accidents that occur on set, and unfortunately, some can result in death. And that with it is as if the death of a cast or crew member isn't enough. There's the collateral damage as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please, Dr. Paul? Yeah, you know, as we dug a bit deeper, you know, we we discovered um, a, a variety of different risks to uh, a person's well-being, their health, and in some instances, some notable deaths have occurred uh, to serve as reminders that this um, industry isn't as safe as we might think it is. Um, we, we started with stunts, which is sort of the obvious. You know, the, <clears throat> the stunt people, the, in general, they're, how do we describe it? A different breed. They're they're willing to to take risks in the physical world already as part of their persona, um, and so it's not surprising that we see deaths happen, you know, occasionally to stunt people. Um, but then there's other things such as chemical exposures, um, and then accidents just in general not so much to the actors or the the stunt performers, but to the crew. And so um, in our film, we highlight the story of Sarah Jones, who was uh, killed on a train trestle in Georgia. Um, The fatigue section of our film, we talk about Brent Hirschman, who was a camera assistant who fell asleep at the wheel while he was driving and hit a pole. Um, and, uh, we talked already a little bit about substance use, uh, we, a young, a young guy named Luke Scott who overdosed here in Boston. 
2017. And um, we also have a section on power abuse, which is kind of a broad topic. And we were very fortunate to have the past president of uh, ACTRA Toronto in our film. And she tells us a great deal about her own personal experiences with sexual harassment, bullying, and then some of the actions that she took uh, to change some of the legislation um, in um, in Canada. Mm-hmm. I, there are just so many dangers around, and um, and a lot of it can be prevented. And I think this film that you're doing is awesome. I'm looking forward to watching the entire thing. So, Dr. Paul, uh, thank you so much for doing this film. It's going to be awesome to educate people about what goes on behind the scenes, really, and to make people's lives safer. But it's not easy to produce a film, and I understand that you're raising some money. How can people contribute to this cause? Well, the easiest way would be to just go to our website, www.safesetsmovie.org. And there's a link right there that takes you to our little crowdfunding campaign. We are approaching the finish line, but we um, need the funds to to get us through the rest of post-production. So any any donations that people make would be greatly appreciated. And, um, and, you know, one way to get involved with the cause, if you will. That's wonderful. And, you know, for Canadians, I, I understand as well that you're um, collaborating with a Canadian film producer uh, to get this movie off the ground, because we certainly do a lot of filming here in this country as well. So that's safesetsmovie.org. My guest is Dr. Paul Heinzelman. Dr. Paul, thank you so much for joining the program tonight and for this great work that you're doing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.